I read from Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the first six verses. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Our job before the world is to persuade them there's one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And after having persuaded them of the, that mental understanding, to have them desire in their hearts to know for themselves that this is true, not because we've told them, but because they've proved that that is the case when people have come into a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But oh, what a task. How skeptical the world. How doubtful many people are that the gospel is what we claim it is. How many people wonder if there's anything really to Christianity. And sometimes they have honest doubts that were brought about by professing Christians conduct. And many times it's very basic to, in, even in their understanding, to assess the situation and to decide that is something's wrong, something is wrong. Sometimes they say, if that party is going to heaven, so will I. That's bad enough if the party they refer to is going to heaven and they only have their doubts about him. But the problem and the consequences are com compounded over and over again. If, in fact, the one referred to is not going to heaven and standing in the way of someone else, and they're going to heaven. Paul knew this would be a problem. Paul knew that human nature is what it is, and the world is what it is. And he gave us instructions to help us be more successful in helping people to see the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in minimizing the things they see that will cause them to doubt or to draw back from giving their lives to God. He knew this was a problem, so he said it. Gave them some instructions here we read for you. And if we'll take them carefully to heart and practice them, we'll see God helping us to do what God planned for us to do, that we might be able to make Christ known. He speaks it so simply we pass it by without noticing. There really it is. I'll read part of it again. I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Yeah. In that word beseech, 
has an urgency about it. He means I earnestly plead with you. Or I implore you. I try to press upon you the seriousness of walking worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, if Paul was of a mind then to tell the people that I have this urgent feeling and I must plead with you and encourage you earnestly to walk very carefully, to walk worthy of the vocation, in other words, the Christian profession, the Christian religion. I implore you, I beseech you to walk worthy of this vocation. And he goes ahead to tell them some points that would help them to actually be walking worthy of this vocation. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, if that means anything, it means not to advance our opinions, contend for our own ways, and put our judgment against others, and with a, with a show of self-sufficiency or self-esteem, prefer ourselves above others. It says, with lowliness, manifest forbearance. And forbearance means that we are to bear with not to and, to, and to tolerate or to let pass some things that we had rather not have seen, but that's what it means, that we are to forbear. In other words, stand back to a certain degree without judging or harshly demanding of other people what they ought to do. And this is exactly what it means. And it's so simple, we're very likely just to read it quickly and pass it by and wonder if it has any application to us. It does. It has an application to all Christians. Now, we cannot expect the worldly, and we mean by that the unconverted, we cannot expect them to have any desire to really fit a pattern like this. Why should they? How could they? From whence would come the desire? What would be the motive? What would be the purpose? If they're unconverted and outside Christ, and for them to have this desire to walk worthy of a vocation they hadn't even become engaged in yet, and to take Paul's admonition that they might do a better job of being meek and lowly and effective in this family, of course they can't understand it. And they'll stand back at a distance and pass judgment upon us, as far as that's concerned, even because of the head knowledge they have. And this is as it is, and we can't change it. Sometimes they have a right to stand off at a distance and wonder why some professing Christians would do the things that they do. Because we generate the questions. If we are doing anything questionable or anything that's the least bit, what, uh, at least degree from what it ought to be, and the worldly people, the unsaved people, see us, it's true enough that they will wonder why. They know our profession is a high profession. We are called with a high calling, to a holy calling, been called by a holy God to forsake the world and all of its involvements and turn from that and turn to Christ, and we profess that we have. And if they see that we are going back toward the world, yearning for the world, 
doing the things of the world, acting like the world, if they see any degree of this in us, then they wonder, what's happened? The first thing they'll feel is that, oh, that person has certainly slipped. They are missing a little bit. They aren't doing what I think is demanded of them in the Bible. And so they right away will cut us off. Right away they will not believe what we say. And the next step will be that they will believe that not only you have slipped, but the next thing you know, they'll blame the church in general. They'll say, the church has slipped. Or the officers or ministers or elders or whoever's responsible, they'll say, something is wrong. And they're judging that by one person. And maybe by one act. And only one. It might have only been done once. It might have been repented of quickly. But the damage may have been done, for that one may not know of your immediate repentance. And the fact that someone helps you and advise you and counsels you to come through the problem. So you see, they might see one thing done and judge that you are at fault and the church is at fault. And then they might go further and even doubt that there's anything real to it at all. And they might think because you failed once that everybody fails all the time. And because everybody fails all the time, there's no such thing as victory, that there's no such thing as a high standard of Christianity and true holiness. No wonder Paul would say, I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He knew the consequences of even one slip. Now, we don't claim by this that we have strength within us never to make a mistake. We preach sanctification, a second work of grace, and we preach that the blood uh, sanctifies and cleanses our hearts and purges us from the old Adamic nature. And we uh, assume that people understand that this is a high calling indeed in Christ Jesus. And we assume especially that those who hear us preach it over and over and over again understand it. But even at that, we don't claim that to be sanctified is to be made humanly perfect. Your motive should be perfect. The heart, if the heart is clean and from the heart issue the very motives of your life, then they must be clear and clean before God or else the heart isn't clear and clean. So you aren't sanctified unless you do have pure motives and pure desires to serve God and to do good in all, you do, all that you do. But if you are sanctified and your heart is holy, you are still human and you're still in this world and you may make a mistake. And it would be good if we would allow our brother to make a mistake also. It would be good if we would say that if our brother makes a mistake, we will let the blood cover that and we'll pray for him and help him if we can so that he might not make it again. Or that he might not become uh, attached to such things and, and practice that all the time until it becomes a failure for many, many, many people. No, to be sanctified is to have a holy heart and to be perfected in Christ. But that is not to be humanly perfect. So what do you do when someone shows that they're not perfect? They transgress against you. They say something they oughtn't to say. They make, they make some deal and don't keep their word. They're not as good as their, as their promise. Something has happened. So what do you do? The Bible tells us how. Now, not to go and tell everyone else all the faults the per man has, but the Scriptures teach us if your brother has transgressed against you, to go to him and him alone and tell him what the problem is. 
And if you win the brother, if the problem can be solved right there, you've, you've saved the brother, and the consequences of what he's done will be uh, nullified then, and between you and him, the problem is settled, and other people don't even know it. No wonder God told us to do it that way, that there might not be harm to other people. Other people might not know it. The church might not be blamed. God's name might not be uh, defamed, but that we might learn that even though we're not so perfect in this world as to do all things right all the time, we at least can follow God's perfect plan, and that is to do it God's way. So if your brother transgresses against you, go and tell him in him alone, and if it's settled then, it's all over. If he will not hear you, then take one or two other witnesses that in the mouth of two or three every word might be established and see if they can't help you. Brothers that love him and brothers that love you or sisters, as the case might be. And then if they will not hear, then you must tell the church. This doesn't mean get up on some Sunday morning in the crowd and make a public example of what the brother has done. That would be exactly opposite to the whole tenor of this. The tenor at first was, don't tell anyone else, tell him. Then if he doesn't hear you, don't tell six, tell one or two. And let them come together to help you. So the next step would not mean make a public example of him. Tell the church means tell the ministers or elders who are responsible for trying to help you solve spiritual problems. And then if they can't help you and if no good comes of this, and all of you involved by now have no success in all of this, then their judgment and their, their settling of the matter will have to be, will have to be final. If, if he will not hear them, nor you, nor the witnesses who went with you, and it's a hopeless case, then it has to be declared on the authority of the church that such is an outsider, and he is not to be considered as one who professes that he subjects his will to the Bible and to, his di and to the discipline of the body of believers. So it's not so complicated. It's very simple. But it's God's way, the right way, and the only way for us to keep the unity of the Spirit now, we can't sit back and twiddle our thumbs and, and sing a song once in a while and think that by that we will do something to cause a great spirit of great unity and great harmony to abound between us and our brother. No, it'll come about because we try hard to cause it to abound. And if we try hard, we are doing our part. And if our brother tries hard, where's the controversy? Where's the problem? None at all. But we get into a controversy if we try to do our brother's part. Or if we refuse to do ours and demand a lot of him. Then we are out of the spirit. We can't settle anything. No wonder your brother can't hear you if you have the wrong spirit when you go to him. No wonder you're quite uh, shockingly surprised when you haven't settled that. And you get some other people to try to help you settle it. And after a while someone says, this might be part of your problem. No wonder you're so shocked if you have the wrong spirit from the beginning. So if so, then all you can do is say, well, I subject myself to the same Bible. I read the same book. I labor hard and try hard to keep the unity of the spirit the same way I expect other people to. So then I'll judge myself by the word of God. And if that being the case, if I have accused my brother when all the time I was guilty of something worse than he was, then I'll repent of my doings, forgive him for his, and hope that he'll stretch himself to extend to me the same forgiveness, the same mercy, and forgive me for what I have done. Now, this is not an imaginary case. The Bible covers that. It says, if you come, if you, if you should see a, a moat in your brother's eye, you should be sure to take the beam out of your own eye first. 
so you can see more clearly to take the mote out of his eye. That means there's a very, very apparent danger that having seen something in someone else might indicate that you have something wrong with you. And the proportion seems to indicate that the little thing you see in your brother, you notice that so often and so long, might indicate that you have something seriously wrong with you. And if so, then take the beam or the big thing out of your own eye, your own life first, so that you might be able then to see the mote that's in your brother's eye. By the time you take the beam out of your own eye, you might fail to see anything wrong with him. Because the victory is such a, such a great thing for you. The love of God has helped you to solve your own problem. You've seen your own fault, repented of that, and asked God to forgive you for it, quit it, taken it out, done away with it. Then by that time, you may have forgotten anyone else had anything wrong with them. It happens. Get down sometime to pray and really search your heart and ask the Lord to show you the way and to help you walk in the way. And as you pray, the searchlight is turned on, not on your brother and your sister, but the searchlight of God's Word. God's Spirit revealing it to you will show you what you need to do. And it happens this way all the time. But Paul says, Endeavor, try hard to keep the unity of the Spirit with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the mechanics of doing all of this is for our benefit as we do it day by day and that the people might see the beauty of Jesus in us, and that they might feel that we are truly a member of the church of the living God, and that we truly have been transformed by grace divine, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The old things we did before, we do no more. The world does all of those all the time. Spiteful and vengeful and jealous and gossipy and try all of that. That goes on in the world all the time. That's all they have to live on. But God help us who are professing Christ as a professor of the Lord Jesus Christ being in our hearts. Let's be sure we don't live like the world and act like they do and eat the same diet they eat. If we do, we're of the world and worldly. But if we have been transformed, then let's remember that we have something yet to do even at that. And that is to try hard, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Sanctification makes us one. But to keep sanctified, you have to walk in the light God gives you. Now, that would mean you could be sanctified this morning, have been sanctified before you came to church even, and haven't, haven't thought about some trivial thing that's between you and your brother. Something's happened. All right, now the lights come. You've heard from the Bible that God expects this of us. And you can read it for yourself in 18th chapter of Matthew and see there that God teaches, that Christ taught His disciples to settle things this way, and He even told them to forgive over and over and over again. One asked the Lord, If my brother transgress against me, shall I forgive him seven times? And He says, Not seven only, but seventy times seven. In other words, not measure our forgiveness by numbers, but forgive. And then we're taught that if we are like that man whose story we heard read in the Scripture lesson this morning, we know an awful judgment awaits us because he, you notice, if you remember that account that Brother Stevens read, was that he had a great debt, a great thing to pay, and he couldn't pay it. He told his master and he just forgave it. Said, you can't do it, you can't make it, so the whole thing is forgiven. Then that fellow, freshly forgiven, just out from under bondage he'd had for years perhaps, 
Having had a great liberty now, it's all settled. The man said, owe you nothing, forget it. Then he goes out and remembers that one of his brothers owes him a little amount, just a puny amount compared with what he owed. And so all of a sudden he gets hard about that and grabbed that poor fellow and would not have mercy upon him. What did that man say? The same thing he had said. Have mercy on me and I'll pay thee all. But he wouldn't listen. He had been forgiven, but he forgot. He had forgotten what he had been, had been through. And so now he demands of this man that he be cast in prison till he paid it all. Then word came from people who knew this. They brought the word to the master and said, The man that you forgave so much, he's gone out and done all this. This is the way he acts. They said, Bring him in. So they brought him in, and he had judgment pa passed upon him again because he would not forgive the man that, that he ought to have forgiven. And the lesson went on to be applied to us and they're telling us that likewise will it be with us if we will not forgive because God has forgiven us. The Lord has forgiven us sins that would damn us to hell forever. Not just a little debt, but a big debt. Not one that might settle after a while or, or might be forgotten. No, we had sinned and judgment awaited us. But God, for Christ's sake, forgave us all of that and cast our sins into the sea of His forgetfulness, never to remember them against us anymore. Oh, and our sins were terrible against a holy God who had given us nothing but love. He had never misunderstood us. He had never demanded too much of us. He had never said anything against any of us. He had never misjudged us any way whatsoever. And yet we had sinned against Him willingly and deliberately. And yet, when we said, have mercy upon us, he said, forget the whole thing. It's all forgiven. And yet, professing Christians then will go after, out after a while, and just because someone does some little puny thing to them or says some little thing about them, they'll have something rise up in their heart, and they'll harbor that and hold it there, and sometimes demand of the people a great, great degree of penitence and, and humility and, and confession. And sometimes even after that's all done, they'll have doubts about them and wonder if it'll ever happen again. God help us to be forgiving. Because as we forgive, so are we forgiven. As we stand today, forgiving, we are forgiven. As we stand today, unforgiving, we are unforgiven. Now, you don't want to get back in the old bondage again, but you can. And a very short route is by an unforgiving spirit. Very short rod, because the Bible plainly says, If we forgive not men their trespasses, neither will our Heavenly Father forgive us. So stand unforgiving, and you're unforgiven. It's just that simple. Why not pray that the blood will cover? And if you see the danger signals coming, you feel any need of really searching your heart, do it. Pray. Ask the Lord to help you forgive, whether they've asked you for forgiveness or not. After all, God forgave you many things you didn't particularly ask for. You had remembered them maybe one by one and were ashamed of them. But many things you did, you never remembered. But God wrote it all in one bundle and forgave it all. Can't you? We have to. So let's be sure we try hard. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. And if we have it between each other, the people will see we love each other. And by this shall all men know that you're my disciples because you have love one for another. And if you love each other, you forgive. You don't demand of the ones the closest to you. You don't hold a hard rule over them to demand this and demand that. If they even come halfway, you accept all that and say, all right, that's fine. Why not of everybody else? 
Let's expect the Lord help us today to have that. To try hard, in, to endeavor, try hard to keep the unity of the Spirit. And if we do, God will give it to us. It'll be your experience, your daily experience. We're going to close the meeting. We're going to sing number 60. As we sing this song, we open the altars for prayer. I invite you to come to pray.